Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. I'm so glad you've decided to spend part of your day listening to the Go and Teach radio program. I'm Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monte Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. We're a congregation of Christians. We believe in Jesus Christ and his message, and we've done our very best to model our lives after his example and his commandments. If there's anything that we talk about in our program today that you'd like to study further, then please reach out to our congregation, and we'll sit down with you, open up our Bibles together, and present to you the simple truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, my favorite kind of story, whether it's movies, TV shows, or books, is the stories of self-discovery. When the main characters have something that they need to figure out along the way, they, they start off at the beginning of the story ignorant of something, or they're young and immature, and through the events of the story, they discover something about themselves that they needed to know, some inner strength or inner courage. And even very great people, with noble qualities, sometimes have to find out something along the way. But here's the thing about self-discovery. You don't always find something that you like. The more rocks that you turn over, the more logs that you look in, uh, the more closets that you open in your mind, sometimes the more stuff you find that you don't like very much. And again, even Great people with a lot of good qualities sometimes have a hard time knowing who they are or confronting the things about them that they know need to be changed. Because of pressure or pretense or social uh, convention, they convince themselves that the veneer of their lives is the reality, that the show they put on, the happy smiling face, the, the look of success, the look of religious superiority, they convince themselves that that veneer ever failing to truly come to grips with who they really are, is in fact reality. One of the challenges that we face to self-discovery is explained by the writer James, who says in James chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. It's so easy for us to listen to sermons or read the Bible and even pay the penalty for our crimes without ever making meaningful personal changes. We make the self-discovery, but we don't apply any change to it. So in this program, I want to tackle some of the barriers that we face in the journey toward lasting, meaningful self-discovery. If a book or a movie was ever going to be made about you, What would your character learn along the way? What negative qualities would you see in yourself looking in the spiritual mirror that you know need to be changed? And if people were reading your story or watching your movie, 
would they find you at the end of the story, a changed person for the better? Now, you might be thinking this is just a silly exercise to think about somebody making a movie about you. I mean, after all, I look at my own life, and I don't think any director or producer out there would want to make a movie as boring as that. But we have to realize there is somebody keeping track of our story. There is somebody reading the events of our lives, viewing from a very close distance, spiritually speaking, the decisions that we're making from day to day to day. There is somebody monitoring our progress. There is somebody who is fully invested in our stories. And if we're going to discover ourselves and make the changes we need to make, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and notice here in verses 9 and 10. Therefore, also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. God knows your story. God knows if you're making progress or if you're going backwards. And when all is said and done and your life comes to an end, God has the eternal perspective to know if it was a happy ending or a negative one. If you have a Bible handy, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. I want to take a look at a story here about self-discovery and a man who discovered himself in the worst way possible. Now, although few would doubt that David was one of the greatest men to have ever lived, his life is marked by at least one incredible failure. One scenario in his life exemplifies this. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're introduced to a woman named Bathsheba. She's a soldier's wife who's found very attractive by the king. As he's enjoying the rooftop view from his house, he notices below the king's palace a woman bathing in her own home. And he's drawn to her. He finds out who she is, invites her to come to the palace, and they begin an affair. Now, as the story goes on, he finds out that the woman, Bathsheba, has become pregnant. Through an increasingly convoluted series of lies and scenarios, he tries to convince the husband, Uriah, to sleep with his own wife, so that when he finds out that she's pregnant, he believes he's the one who did it. Now, when the man refuses to do that, out of honor, it should be pointed out, David has the man killed and thinks that the whole situation's wrapped up nice and tidy until the prophet Nathan comes to him in chapter 12 with this story. There were two men in one city, Nathan tells David. The one was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now in verse 5, David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Now, here is that moment in the story when we can see from our perspective as readers what David cannot recognize in the midst of the action of the story. 
So it said here in verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Boy, that's self-discovery at its worst, isn't it? That is self-discovery at its worst. David was blindsided by this. And it took these strong words from Nathan to finally open his eyes to the reality of the choices that he made. made. David, you are the man. You're the one in this story. Let me give you a couple of applications to think about. We may have many wonderful traits and still be in need of some self-discovery. That was David's case. He's called a man after God's own heart at one point, very early in his life. But he's certainly not a man after God's own heart in this story. Somebody who takes advantage of another person, somebody who uses his power and his position to overcome a woman and sleep with her, somebody who lies about that and then uses murder as a cover-up, that, that's not a man after God's own heart right there. I mean, all things considered, David was a great man, and we admire him for good reason, but he failed woefully in this story. And by the way, if you know anything about the rest of David's life, then you know he paid a penalty for years to come for what he did. There were ramifications, consequences to this event in his life that he had to live with for the rest of his life. When we're confronted with a distasteful truth about ourselves, how do we respond to it? Many people become defensive, angry, or they look for someone else to blame. Give David credit, however. That when he discovered something about himself that he didn't like, he did try his hardest to rectify the situation with God. Instead of turning to bitterness, he turned to prayer. Instead of becoming cynical, he became humble. A third application. Often it's our wealth and our luxury that blinds us. David was a warrior. It was his true and noble calling. Yet when other kings were on the battlefield, according to 2 Samuel 11 verse 1... David, who had slain his ten thousands, was living luxuriously in his house. He was letting somebody else do the dirty work for him. We only deceive ourselves when we stop doing what we do best in favor of an easy lifestyle. And fourth, it's amazing how well parables and analogies work to convince us to see who we really are. Many people will never discover themselves until they're forced to judge an analogous situation objectively. I think that's why Jesus used parables so often in his ministry. He understood that with most of his listeners, the direct approach just wasn't going to work. He wouldn't be able to penetrate the hard exterior of most of the people listening to him. So he used parables. He used stories and analogies to go through the back door, so to speak. And once people had a chance to process the parable and realize, hey, wait a minute, this parable is about me. It was at that point they were finally ready to make a discovery about themselves that they might not have been able to make earlier. Let's move on from David and look at a second example of somebody who needed to discover himself. The Pharisee from Luke chapter 18, whose pretense blinded him to self-discovery. Luke 18 verse 10 says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee is the figure used by Christ to represent the people to whom he was addressing the parable. That is, the people from the previous verse who trusted themselves that they were righteous. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. 
Notice a few things about the way this Pharisee is praying. First of all, he's standing. And while it's not necessarily wrong to stand and pray, we do, after all, pray short mental prayers at certain times throughout the day in secret while we might be standing at the DMV or standing at work. But in such a public setting, at the temple, standing in front of everybody, there is something about the standing that's noteworthy. It wasn't uncommon to hear prayers like this either. In the Talmud, it was written that when a certain rabbi left his school, he used to say, I thank thee, O eternal, my God, for having given me part with those who attend this school. Instead of running through the shops, I rise early like them, but it's to study the law, not for futile ends. I take trouble as they do, but I shall be rewarded and they will not. We run alike, but I for the future life, while they will only arrive at the pit of destruction." That was from the pulpit commentary, by the way. Second, the Pharisee is praying thus to himself. Isn't it interesting language? Praying thus to himself. It's as if the Pharisee in Luke 18 isn't even aware of his need to pray to God. This would certainly be odd language if one was to describe a man making supplication to God. The fact that this, prayer, this Pharisee is praying to himself shows that he's not even interested in pleasing God in his prayers. He He simply wants to announce to the world that he's more righteous than everybody else. This man needed to discover something about himself. And that's why Jesus presents this story. He presented this story, as he says, to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Like I said earlier, I think Jesus knew that he couldn't take the direct approach to them. He couldn't talk to those who trusted themselves that they were righteous. He couldn't talk to them just straightforward. He had to present this parable so that they could listen to the parable and make the discovery about themselves for themselves. They had to hear the parable and find themselves in the parable. That was important. Three things to think about then before we move on to another point. The Pharisee in this story gives absolutely no credit to God for anything good in his life. Rather, it's his own virtues that he lauds and not the mercies of the Almighty Father. Self-discovery is hindered when we use only our own merits as measuring tools. He says nothing of his own undeserving nature, unlike the prayers of men like Jacob, who admitted to God in Genesis chapter 32 that, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. And although we may have a holy or rich veneer, we always need to remember Romans 3 verse 23. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And third, he falls into the trap of comparing himself to other people. This is something that's quite common in any age. We often see the sorry state of our people we do not like, and thank God that we're not as bad as them. When we see marriages fall apart, when we see men and women on the street corner begging for drinking money, When we look at the denomination across the street and make wisecracks about their false doctrines or apostasy, there's something about seeing other people suffering or other people failing that makes us feel better about ourselves. And if we believe this, though, we have to completely throw out 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, which tells us that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. We have to make the discovery about ourselves that Luke chapter 18 And the story of the Pharisee praying thus to himself in the temple, that's a story about all people who trust in themselves that they were righteous. My friends, just like so many people from the time of Jesus, it is so easy 
to have a grossly perverted view of ourselves, to be so unaware of what we truly are and the mistakes that we're making, the way that we treat people, our selfishness. Consider, for example, the Laodiceans from Revelation chapter 3. If you've got your Bible out, go and turn to Revelation 3 and read a few verses here about this congregation of Christians, beginning in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, and here's the key, verse 17, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. The Laodiceans had no clue just how spiritually poor they were. They said to themselves, I'm rich. I've increased with goods. I have need of nothing. I'm full. And Jesus says, you have no idea. You're completely clueless. You're completely clueless. Sometimes we fail to see ourselves for what we really are. And though we're comfortable or popular or socially engaging or wealthy, None of those things satisfies our eternal or spiritual needs. You will never really discover yourself if you only measure your value in material things. You'll never discover the spiritual need that you have as long as you think that the money in the bank and the titles of your job and how good you look or how popular you are, if you measure your identity and your worth and yourself in all of those material things, you're clueless. You are clueless. The Apostle Peter was not immune to this also. He thought he was stronger than he really was. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 30 through 33 through 35, Jesus and Peter have an interesting exchange. And while Jesus states matters plainly, explaining that his apostles would indeed be weakened, that they would fall away, Peter argues here that he's above denial, that he would never deny Jesus. He's so confident of himself that he rebuffs Jesus repeatedly. This is, keep in mind, this is Peter arguing with the Son of God. And, and just one of those things in life, good little life lesson, if you find yourself arguing with the Son of God, you are on the wrong side of that argument. Doesn't matter what you're saying, doesn't matter how smart you are, you are on the wrong side of the argument when you're arguing against Jesus. So in spite of all of his protesting, when the time did come for his faith to be tested, Peter's true weaknesses were revealed. He was offended by the name of Jesus, and he most definitely denied him before the cock would crow. When we're given fair warning of the dangers ahead of us, just like Peter was, do we scoff or do we take heed? Instead of denying the truth of his weakness, perhaps Peter could have spent his time preparing for impending temptation. 
Too many of us have a very cavalier attitude toward temptation. Sometimes we only discover our limits when we fall. And if that's the case, maybe our goal should not be to discover our limits. A lot of people want to see just how close they can get to sin without actually falling headlong into it. A better approach, however, would be to avoid sin at all costs and not see what it feels like to be defeated. I saw a quote on Facebook earlier today, actually, that was attributed to Dean Martin. I don't know if Dean Martin actually said it. You know how things are on Facebook. But the quote was interesting at the very least. Good judgment comes from experience. And experience? Well, that comes from poor judgment. You know, and as funny as that sounds, as as amusing as it is to hear that, I'm not so sure that I agree with that. And God doesn't agree with it either. You don't have to go to the bottom to know that the bottom isn't where you want to be. You don't have to have been a drug addict to know that you don't want to be a drug addict. You don't have to experience sin to know that sin destroys you. You don't, you don't have to have bad experiences in order to come to a place of good judgment. As dramatic as it is in movies and books and other kinds of stories for, for the main character to hit rock bottom, and, and as much as that provides a nice engine of drama for those kinds of stories, remember, your life is not a movie. Your life isn't guaranteed a well-scripted ending. Your life isn't guaranteed some deus ex machina moment where something comes in at the last minute and saves the day. If you have a cavalier attitude about sin, that sin might just destroy you. You are not guaranteed some great moment of awakening. You are not guaranteed a nicely scripted moment of self-discovery. You need to start discovering yourself right now. You need to avoid sin, run from sin, go the other direction, cast sin out of your life, and become a Christian. When we think that we're too strong to fail, we may drop our guard and prove ourselves too weak to overcome. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says, Therefore, whoever thinks he stands, take heed, lest you fall. As we bring our program to a close today, let's consider a few broader practical applications, some various hindrances to good self-discovery. First, we're duped when we look at the sins of other people instead of our own. In a book called The Christian's Everyday Problems, Leroy Brownlow said this, There was an elderly man who often wore a coat patched with many colors. He said the patches on the sides represented the sins of his neighbors. The patches on his back, however, represented his own sins, where he couldn't see them. And Jesus said something similar to this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Self-deception comes from measuring ourselves by others who we know are weaker, and we know are less fortunate. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12. You can't measure yourself by other people. We only have an accurate view of self when we look at our own deeds and our own attitudes. Galatians 6 and verse 4. We're hindered from self-discovery when we assume virtues which are not our own. Do we take pride in a family name or in a large, growing congregation to which we actually have contributed nothing? 
The Bible emphasizes self-examination. 1 Corinthians 11, 28. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves. See if you are strong in the faith through self-examination. So we're just about out of time. So my plea to you is examine yourself right now. Mark 16, verse 16 says, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who does not believe shall be condemned. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. You have an opportunity to listen to the gospel message and to respond to it through belief and obedience to all the commandments of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to study this or any other topic further, we're happy to sit down. Just don't wait too long. The opportunity, the window to discover what needs to be changed about yourself might just be closing. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montavistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Montavista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monta Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com. Amen.